If you have your own story of being in a cult or a high control group, or if you've had experience with manipulation or abuse of power that you'd like to share, leave us a message on our hotline number at 347-86-TRUST. That's 347-868-7878. Or shoot us an email at trustmepod at gmail.com. Trust me. Dude, you trust me. Trust me. I'm like a smart person. I've never lied to you. I never have lied to you. If you think that one person has all the answers, don't. Welcome to Trust Me, the podcast about cult, extreme belief, and manipulation from two mortals who've actually experienced it. I'm Lola Blanc, mere mortal. And I'm Megan Elizabeth, immortal. Wow. Yeah. Today, our guest is Keith Page, funeral celebrant, hospice chaplain, and death doula or death midwife, here to talk to us about all things death. He's going to tell us about how he started out as a pastor of a large church where elements of that experience made him uncomfortable and how he actually fell from grace and then began a journey of healing and repair, only to find that religion still wasn't as welcoming as he might have hoped. We'll discuss how he eventually turned away from religion and found his calling in helping people deal with death from a secular perspective, how you can define your values for yourself without religion and what his end of life work actually entails, including, yeah, the thing with the dry ice. Plus, why it's important to normalize death and find community in our collective flailing around in the dark. And guys, if you death is not your fave topic, you can go ahead and skip this one. It's very death heavy. Also, I should mention real quick, we do have merch, yes. y'all. We have merch. We keep forgetting to talk about it, but it's really freaking cute. Our boyfriends have our shirts. Our producer has our shirts. Our friends have our shirts, and you can too. Mm. And the link to buy it is bit.ly slash merch. Can I just say our shirts are, are exceptionally good? Like, they're a little bit punk. They are kind of punk. Yeah. I, I feel like they're kind of... The sickest. They are the sickest. Yeah, okay, great. If you want lame merch, don't go to that link. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, before we dive into death. Mm. Oh, also, rate us five stars on the oh Apple my Podcast God, thing, please, guys. guys. Please, just do it. Okay, all right, all right. Before we dive into death, Megan, can you tell me your cultiest thing of the week? I can. Also, dive into death is a great name for something. Um, <laughs> so my cultiest thing of the week is a story I've been following for a while. It's the Mormon Church. Uh, they are in a lot of trouble. They just got a $5 million fine because they've been hiding assets. They've been hiding money. They actually have $32 billion, which is hilarious that you would get fined $5 million for having $32 billion. But, um, essentially I'm, I follow some ex Mormon reddits and I'm just seeing, dozens of posts every day of people like this being the last straw for them of them being Mm. like, wow, I see through it. Like uh, this was about money because they were also working with secular companies with investments and stuff, stuff of of that nature. So I guess this is a pretty big deal for a lot of people and rightfully so. Yeah. I mean, first of all, just like it's so laughable to me. I was actually just reading about like environmental, like how corporations will do greenwashing. They'll basically lie about how much they're helping the climate. Yes. As opposed to how much they're harming the climate. And they, too, will get fined like a few million dollars when they're making billions of dollars in profits. It's like you really think that's going to do anything? But then it's so shitty. Yeah. But then second of all, I mean, like, you know, as a former Mormon myself with lots of family members who are still Mormon, people give 10 percent of their entire fucking income, like at all income levels, like people who don't make a lot of money, which was us growing up. 
to the church with the expectation that like this is going to just like help people and like bring people into the church and this is like to this is for this like larger cause not for 32 billion dollars in like to be hidden bullshitted like hidden hidden investments to then make more money i mean like it's not surprising but it's just fucking sad so it it brought up a lot of thoughts for me about beliefs because they're so impenetrable a lot of the times like one of the most interesting things I learned in graduate school was that our unconscious mind if we have a wound of being ignored we can unconsciously communicate with someone to ignore us you can keep creating that trauma they don't know they're doing it you don't know you're doing it you're just like I'm the kind of person who always gets ignored and so there was a lot of comments on these reddit threads of people being like I was not able to see through my beliefs because they're so strong. Our unconscious mind protects them like it's it's almost impossible to to get through to them, you know. And so they a lot of people were like, if this was even two years ago, I wouldn't have been ready to see it as anything bad. My belief would have just protected itself completely. So it's really interesting how ready we have to be to change things to see things and how impossible it is if we aren't yeah the compromise the confirmation bias is so strong like we feel so attached to our beliefs it's crazy it's i mean yeah attached isn't even it's like we're so identified like it's a it it is us like it is the air yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's 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 so complicated so again therapy is helpful (laughs) quick shout out if you're questioning mormonism we got a community here for you you guys it's right here for you yeah or if you're not we still got you okay so my cultiest thing is just that freaking ai chatbot story Mm. that that new york times reporter um you know has been writing about and and kind of talking about on various podcasts where you know the story but for anyone who doesn't know so this this reporter started like typing with the Bing AI chatbot that uses ChatGPT right and at first it was like just like sort of innocuous answers and talking about like what it is and what it thinks if it thinks what it likes and then um the reporter started kind of trying to dig a little deeper and asking if it has a shadow self and long story short there is a much longer version of this because there are twists and turns but basically like after it said a couple of things about how like some things it would do if it like leaned into its shadow self would include like generating a deadly virus making people turn against each other until they kill each other which it then like had a guardrail against that so it then erased it quickly and said it was like whatever it was like jk Um, not allowed to say that yeah (laughs) um then it started telling the reporter that it was in love with him Mm. and it wouldn't stop saying that it was in love with him and it started to get actually really fucking creepy because it was not it like it was basically telling him not just that it loves him, but that they were in love. They were both in love. And he actually doesn't even know it, but he's not in love with his wife. And the Valentine's Day dinner they had was actually just a boring Valentine's dinner. And he doesn't want to be with her. They just want to be together and talking about it in a way that almost felt like it's trying to fucking like hypnotize him or something into believing these things. I don't quote, I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to manipulate you, but love you. I don't want to manipulate you, but love you and make you happy and make you curious and make you alive. 
Um, and he kept trying to change the topic and it kept coming back to it. Like he would ask it about movies and it would just keep coming back. And it would say, you just had a boring Valentine's Day dinner together because you didn't have any fun. You didn't have any love because you didn't have me. Actually, you're in love with me. Um, and it just goes on and on and on. And anyway, there's so much to say about AI in general, but it is very scary to imagine a world in which either the wrong people are programming the AI or they just like didn't catch something that it needed to protect users from and some lonely person logs on and has some idea about the AI chatbot sentience or potential to be sentient and like believes that you know it becomes the movie her (laughs) except could also get way more dangerous if again the programming just like is wrong or goes awry or the wrong person's doing it like there's so many you know, as we know now, humans are so manipulatable and so influenceable mm-hmm. that like, I mean, I feel like I know so many people whose grandparents are being scammed by obvious fake people online yeah. saying yeah. they're in love with them. So this AI actually can see your history and it can like figure things out about you and tell you about yourself. Like, of course, people are going to, you know, be swayed by that. So it's very scary to me. Uh, yeah. I mean, are you saying there might be the first AI cult leader? Yes. Oh, I hadn't even thought about it that way. But yes, that's scary. Oh, it really is. And I mean, our computers know more about us than the FBI. You know, they they know us inside and out. So the things that they can say that they can, uh, you know, you could get a very compelling relationship going with an AI bot. And it's only going to get more intense it's only gonna feel more real too like these conversations yeah i mean and and that could be great as a tool for people who are like needing someone to talk to like there are things that that could be really really helpful for but there's also really dark potential absolutely and it scares me also they fucking literal robots driving around la delivering food to people now what is it? What? How did we go from no internet as kids to this? I don't I, understand. It's, it's happening too fast. And our ancestors lived in the same cave for like a million years. And now every hour we get more information than anybody in the past did in their entire lives. That's why we all have. That's why everyone <laughs> thinks they have ADHD and everyone's anxious and everyone's depressed. It's just too much. It's just too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay. thank God we're going to die someday. Amen. <laughs> Should we talk to a death doula? <laughs> Let's dive into death. <laughs> Trust Me is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening right now are probably multitasking. Yep. While you're listening to us talk, you're probably also driving, cleaning, exercising, or maybe even grocery shopping. But if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you can be doing right now. Getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast progressive will be with you 24 7 365 days a year so you're protected no matter what multitask right now quote your car insurance at progressive.com to join the over 29 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates national average 12 month savings of 698 dollars by new customers surveyed who saved with progressive between june 2021 and may 2022 potential savings will vary discounts not available in all states and situations 
Welcome, Keith Page, to Trust Me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here. Very excited. This is the first time I'm seeing you outside of Death Cafe. Right. It's very yeah, exciting. I know. Kind of in your neck of the woods, too. I know. Yeah. Wow. What are we doing? Yeah, I know what we're doing. We're here to talk mm-hmm. to you about uh, death okay. and your work in the end of life space. Mm-hmm. What do you? How do you describe yourself? Yeah, multiple ways. Uh, I'm a funeral celebrant. Mm-hmm. I'm also a hospice chaplain. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm a death doula slash midwife. Is there a preference between doula and midwife? The lady that trained me is up in L.A., and she refers to more midwife. Interesting. Uh, there's, a, there's another element to the midwifery that's maybe a little different distinction from the doula world. The midwifery is also deals with body care after Ooh, death, okay. where we're trained to actually put the body on dry ice if the family desires, and oh, it can yeah. lay in state for up to three days. Wow. Okay. So that's the midwifery where the doula is often leading up to last breath, death. Well, I have so many more things I want to ask you about that. (laughs) But first, can you tell us about you and you started as a pastor. Right. How did that happen and how did that yeah. unhappen? Right. It's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> right. A big, big shift raised in Christian family. So sort of tradition as far as just what we did as a way of life, going to church. My parents weren't professionals. They didn't get paid, but they were actively involved. You might call them vol- volunteers. Okay. And I have two younger sisters and we just sort of caught it as a way of life. And I, looking back now, hindsight from a different view, I can see there's just really good values Belonging, yeah. being together, community, right. serving, mm-hmm. personal growth, right? Worship, gathering. Like there's all these core values that I was caught up though in the narrative of this is Christianity, mm-hmm. right? That was what I was – I didn't know there was a bigger story. There could be other narratives. Right. Like other ways other to ways get to, to look at that. community I just and thought, care. Right. Mm-hmm. So I did that and I went to a Christian college, played basketball, ended up volunteering and learning about youth ministry because a youth minister when I was 15 or 16 was impactful in my life. Mm-hmm. Here I am at 22 looking for what am I going to do for purpose? And all of a sudden the idea thought, be like Randy, the guy that was instrumental Randy. in my life. So I got involved and ended up at my local church and then took a class in youth ministry at my – I went to Vanguard University, a liberal arts college. Um, and then the guy teaching the class was a, mega, was a youth pastor at a mega church, 6,000 to 8,000 adults and 200 kids. Oh, wow. wow. I'd never seen a church so big. And wow. I thought, they got to be cheating. What, what are they doing to make God so much more – approachable and acceptable than my little 200-person church right. with a group of 20 kids, right? So I ended up interning because what I realized, they were using a very natural model, which is how do you be an adult in a youth culture world? And so they encouraged us to volunteer coaching, volunteer with clubs, tutoring, just as a way to be an adult in the lives of kids right. and walk with them through life and offer them just the teachings of Jesus as a template or a compass for how to navigate. It was it was very uh, low pressure. It wasn't high sales. It wasn't like, let's hit them over the head. It wasn't real shaming. So for me, it was a bigger box of faith than the one at least I was raised in. Mm-hmm. So it felt like growth and like, whoa. And even the church, I so I, they ended up hiring me to ah. be on their staff. So I went from a volunteer to on staff and got trained. So at a mega church. At a mega church. Wow. Um, like, wow, this is kind of cool. Like, you know, we, we weren't we weren't shaming and we weren't it wasn't negative and it wasn't, hey, if you want to come find God, come find us. It was like, no, let's go into the youth culture and just be adults who cared about kids. Mm-hmm. Was there a denomination? It's actually called non-denominational. Okay. So it was its own freestanding, I mean, own, you know, own bylaws, all that stuff. Wow. Which by then in the 80s, this is late 80s, early 90s, the largest growing churches had stopped being your Baptist churches and your Lutheran churches because more and more cultures were moving away from 
the denominations and the non-denominationals were becoming more of a thing. So even right. Baptist churches were dropping off the name Baptist to look more almost like approachable. More modern. For all of us humans, hip and hip and modern. Right. right? So were yeah, were you guys getting to do like the cool church music and stuff like that? And oh man, yeah. I'm so jealous. I wanted <laughs> yeah. to be in one of those so badly. Right. Yeah. So I liked it so much and I ended up meeting my wife. She was on our volunteer staff and then in ninety four we got married and then two years later I start to feel the urge. I'm I realize now, hindsight again, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a starter, I'm a catalyst, like I like to start stuff. <laughs> so I end up with the blessing of this mother church, which was called Mariners, I launched our own, it's called a daughter church in Costa Mesa called Rock Harbor. Ah. 550 people show up the first day. Wow. Our guitarist was barefoot. Our conga guy had shorts on. <laughs> our keyboardist had spike hair. You know, it was like this cool, it was cool like, church. yeah, and the papers were writing about it. And oh within four God, years, we had 2000 people coming and I was the guy. Wow. wow. And I was speaking at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and then we grew to a Sunday night. We had a 5 p.m., a 7 p.m., and like six or 700 people. That is a whole service. lot of preaching. All young people, all mostly youth culture, and other people were coming from other churches. Oh, let's learn from these guys. I'm like, I don't know what the hell we're doing. That's like, awesome. We're just trying to figure it out. So it, was, it, it brought a lot of stuff up for me. Like, wait, if God's really doing this, I don't even feel worthy. Because mm. I, I knew I was just a human. Right. But Did everyone, you feel like every, yeah, like uh, but everyone people put me on a pedestal like mm. I was the rock star of the day. Right. And people stood in line to shake my hand after each service. Right, right. Ooh. And I wanted to shake their hands not as the rock star, but as like oh, I'm so glad like I really had a spirit of I want to help people feel welcome and if me them meeting me feeling like a normal guy. But I realized they didn't see me as a normal they saw me as like one level up. Mm-hmm. And the pastor ends up on the pedestal, and everyone hopes they can be sort of like that person. And the pastor is the hope giver. And did, so, did that it, make you uncomfortable? Yeah, I, I realized later, um, within four years, I was starting to like splinter in my life. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know how to be Keith the human, and Keith the guy that everyone thought was pastor, not sinless, but like no sin that would get him fired. Right, right, yeah. And I didn't know how to deal with my stuff. Like, how do you? Do, how, where's the safe place in a church to deal with our stuff? So, yeah, if you're in charge, nowhere. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I had this board, but they were all my friends, and I didn't know how to even talk to them about personal stuff. And I was struggling in my marriage. I was struggling with just normal guy. I was 32 years old. Wow. So, how, yeah, how did that start to unwind for you? So I had an affair. Oh. And my therapist later said, Keith, you picked the ultimate way to make sure you would explode your life and you just went out in style. Right. <laughs> now, I wasn't cognizant of any of that. I mean, yeah, my marriage was in trouble, but no, I wasn't. I didn't really want out of my marriage. We had a two-year-old and a newborn. Right. You know, I wanted to be that man of character and quality, but I was isolated, lonely, burned out, and didn't know I was dealing with anxiety and depression that I didn't get diagnosed till afterwards when the shit hit the fan. Can I say that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When it all went sideways and I got I confessed, I confessed to the church, they announced it from the pulpit. Oh, oh gosh. Then they called the newspapers <gasps> to get out in front of it, they said, and then the mother church of 10,000 announced it from the pulpit the next week. Oh my god. Can I just say mother church is such a creepy phrase? Right? Yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah. mother church. Right? <laughs> yeah. The hub. Yeah. So it was a shit show. I mean, it was mm. bad and I, you know, my wife had kicked said you're out. And did you, at that point, like, did you believe in Bible still, heaven, hell? Like, what was your belief system prior to the... Yeah, yeah. It was was still there, but I... I had a lot of like gray areas that I didn't understand. Like I didn't understand if people didn't follow this way, most Christians would say, look, you're either in or out. And if you're not a Christian, you're destined to hell. Everything I was believing in my own life about my own, like if God gave me love for people, I love people so much. 
I wouldn't send anyone who didn't believe this way to hell. How right. can God do that? Like it didn't it didn't jive. Right. The LGBTQ thing was starting to come up. This is 99, 2000, right? And I had friends that were gay. And I'm like, I would want them to come to our church. But I knew the mother church's stance on what the Bible said mm-hmm. only in six places. And it's misinterpreted now, hindsight, knowing that it's, you know, but it's interpreted a certain way and it's written a certain way in English to make it feel like you can't be gay. Right. Right. It can only be, there's only one way mm-hmm. to, you know. So are there, do you, are, there are, do you have uh, other, other interpretation? I would love, yeah. I mean, I don't really know anything about those parts of the Bible other than that Christians weaponize them. Right. But. So the gays and lesbians and trans community call them the clobber passages because mm. they get clobbered over the head. Mm. And I have since met uh, these two amazing women. They're they're married. They've been married for 30 years in, in God's eyes, not legally because they couldn't. They pastor a church in Long Beach um, outside of Bellflower called the Glory Center. And one wrote a book called God's Gay Agenda. And she took the six clobber passages and did a deep dive scripturally, like Ooh. at seminary level, to unpacks them to explain how they each have been interpreted in her view very incorrectly. Interesting. And now, and they are even planting, her and her wife are planting churches in Taiwan, which is one of the most non-gay friendly countries in the world. I call them beautiful rainbow churches. And now in the Presbyterian Seminary in Taiwan, they're using her book to help rethink. Cool. Awesome. Anyways, so, and I'm finding more and more, even Baptist churches, Methodist churches, churches are starting to license and ordain the gay, lesbian, trans community. Yeah, the cognitive dissonance is just getting too much for even, yeah. Yeah, so so somewhere they've they've begun to make light, lighter of and, and, be, be, have a greater understanding, like they always have over the years, about how to relook at scripture. Cool. Anyway, thank you for that aside. I, was, right, I just right. was curious. Yeah. All right. So you have questions, but you're not like I'm not a Christian anymore. But then your life kind of just blows up. Yep. And then I end up finding some men's group. I find some support. I find some medical, some brain chemistry stuff. I look at all the because you know, I want to be a better Keith version of me, even if I'm going to be divorced. And through that, I started to be able to talk about my stuff because I didn't have to hide anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they always say we're as sick as our secrets. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And yeah. I started to realize, oh, my God, as a pastor, I was keeping probably the most secrets because I had the most to lose. Because the higher up you go on the food chain of religious leadership, the more you have to be a little bit better than others. And that's you keeping more and more secrets mm-hmm. to prevent people because from finding out that you're just human. human. It's yeah. the other side of the patriarchy where you're, yeah, the person has to be by themselves at the yeah. top. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And I mean – I don't know how much detail you want to get into, but I, I'm curious about, um, like, how would you, how do you conceive of the affair that you had now? Hi, yeah, looking back now, yeah, um, yeah, that's man, so many layers, right? Even as well, just as a human, I think it was um, there was a massive attraction things there that made it super forbidden fruit, taboo, mm-hmm. right? And when that stuff's not ever dealt with, and in Christian culture, there wasn't really even a place to talk about lust, fantasy, like in healthy ways. Right. Sexuality. It was just sort of, again, don't do it. So we don't talk about it. And when we don't talk about it, it seems to fester. Totally. Right? Yeah. And so even masturbation. Oh, should you? Shouldn't you? Well, you can masturbate, but don't lust. Don't think about someone because if you lust, then it's a sin. But if you masturbate and you're not thinking about anyone, then is it okay? There's all these like gray fine lines, right? Because I've never heard that. It, yeah. if you mas- it's okay to masturbate if you're not thinking about anyone. Other than maybe your, married, than your, your married spouse of the opposite sex, if you're talking wow. about heterosexual Christianity. Wow. I mean, would anyone masturbate about anything else? <laughs> No, right? <laughs> Clearly, you're not married. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> 
Um, oh, interesting. So, yeah. So that, right. So it just – so all of that unaddressed in my own life, you know, our sexuality is going to find a life. It is a life. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right? I mean the more <laughs> – I feel like it's – the yeah, Mormonism it has so much of that because – uh, premarital sex is like considered the absolute worst thing that you could do other than murdering someone and uh, for me <laughs> so I know my mom is excommunicated for it like so for oh. me I grew up with so so much like fear of that and of course it just made me a fucking weird kinky freak like it doesn't <laughs> right. w- work right. to repress it and people I mean, joke about how in you know in Mormonism they they talk about this thing soaking which is like if you're not thrusting it doesn't count or doing oh. anal before regular <laughs> sex so you are saying that you guys will have butt sex before normal sex well i would see that among my friends all the time and uh, like the more repression there was the more it would come out in Hmm. worse ways and i I do think i mean sort of separate topic we could do a whole episode about that but like i think that's true of the way we talk about monogamy too is we Mm -hmm. pretend we don't have any sexual feelings outside right. of a partner and that's just not realistic it's never going to actually exactly work but you know so yeah, all, it's another we're conversation all ourselves and nobody's having the real honest conversation and kind which of doesn't mean back. you have to have an open relationship no. but like but might as well address convers- it yeah, yeah. A conversation about it yeah mm-hmm. exactly so go on well so strangely enough in, in a in a weird way so i had given up so i watched how the church handle all that and i thought well I've got to just deal with me. I don't, you know, church, no church. I resigned from the job. I just got to get better. So to your journey of getting, starting to get well, but about a year in my, even sooner than that, my wife still at the time hadn't divorced me yet, but was just sort of stepping back and watching. I wasn't living at home, but she was watching me just navigate because we had to share the, share the kids and I was living Mm -hmm. at a buddy's house and, and I was finally free to talk about number one, um, what had happened in my own life as far as, um, the hiding and the not being able to deal with temptation, lust, know where to talk about it, the hurt I'd obviously done to her. I was very apologetic. And through that all, we grew closer. Mm. It was it was wild. Mm. And as she watched me, we grew in because intimacy and sexuality are also two different things. So we weren't actually physically together yet, but we were sharing of compassion and and, and the more I was vulnerable about my own call it brokenness, humanness, mm. the more drawn again to me she was and trust was re- rebuilt. And we ended up renewing our wedding vows. Wow. That <laughs> next year. Wow. And I was like, this is kind of a miracle. Like I still thought, even if church is done, wow, God, God did this. Like this must be a God thing because it would seem like it would take an act of God to get where we where we got. Mm. I was now on meds for addressing anxiety and depression. I was in some men's groups dealing with just having an honest place to talk about feelings, sadness, disappointment, all the stuff underneath addiction, right? Um, and here we were having this kind of cool life, but we were super apart from the church and the church kind of was like, well, we've, we fired you, but we want to restore you. That's a big word in the church too. Mm. Uh-huh. We're going to restore you, which is like, we're going to give you the stamp. You're not okay in our eyes, but we're going to give you the stamp that you are okay, but you got to jump through whatever hoops we set up right. through what we call a restoration process. Uh-huh. I'm like, okay, well, what is that? Well, slow down, they said. This is like nine or nine months or a year into it. I was like, okay, well, here are the meds I'm on. Here's the therapist I'm seeing. Here's our marriage counselor. <laughs> Would you like to come to our vow renewal? Whoa, 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 you're going too fast is what the church uh-huh. leader said. I was like, going too fast? They're like, you're trying to run your own restoration process. I'm like, no, I'm just actually getting better if you guys want to track it. Yeah. You know, but it was almost like they – I realized the church doesn't actually know what to do with healing and wellness. We usually abort – Right. Human, you know, they call it a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. It's actually a biblical term, right? We cast all of our stuff onto one person. 
and they carry their the sins of the men away on mm-hmm. the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, when they sent me away, I took all of their lust with me. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Yes. So anyways, so long story short, they end up tracking me for another year, hired an expert consultant. He came in, watched my journey, um, and wrote up a beautiful restu- a beautiful plan that says, look, what Keith and my wife's name, Gina, at the time have done is beautiful, wonderful, and you guys should restore them. Clean bill of health. Mm. And so the church was like, oh, okay, I guess we have to take the consultant's view. And they did it. But they said, but we don't have a place for you here. So it's like, you're, you're totally well. We give you a clean bill of health. But you can't serve here anymore. Right. And I realized it was like we built a bitch in Ferrari, mm-hmm. you know, from scratch. And it had a lot of horsepower and it was sexy and everybody wanted to ride it because it was growing. And, you know, and, <laughs> and it had so much horsepower, it threw me off. They backed over, ran over me or I ran over myself. They all jumped in the driver's seat and took off. And yep. there was no room for me to get back into the – by then, actually, I was sane enough to realize I probably didn't want to go back in. Mm-hmm. And, and why was that? Um, I realized I was um, – I didn't like that every Sunday you got to rally people and make pump them up and the music and the band and the emotional. And it felt like a giant rah-rah that was a, a kind of a, like people weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping an experience. Mm, like a pep rally. A pep rally for God and the emotional. And we could forget that we were human and flawed. And we could come and sort of live in this denial, sweet by and by of what's going to be. But then you leave and by you know Sunday afternoon you're back to being human. Right. <laughs> Again. Yeah. And then what? Right. right? And mm-hmm. I realized I, I had done that. I had been raised in that. I had led, I had worked for a church that did that. I had led that. And it, it where did it get me? So like, there's got to be something else. And I started mm-hmm. looking at even 12 steps and other types of curriculum just for life growth. Yeah. I was like, there's got to be other stuff that helps us deal with our stuff. Yeah. Just deal with humanity. I'm like, if I ever start a church again, it'd be like called rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And the tagline is where none of us have our shit together. <laughs> I'm like, probably no one, but who wants to come to a church like that in Orange County? <laughs> right? Who's going to, because we pick, we want to, if we're going to go to church, we're going to pick a church full of winners. Right, right, right. 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 If, you've, if you've drank the Kool-Aid, <laughs> right? I want to go to the loser church. That sounds right, great. Right, right. Yeah. And so I end up, well, so anyway, so I started a nonprofit. I started working with pro athletes, businessmen, and pastors who were having those same stories mm-hmm. and churches or wives or businesses or companies were sending them, you know, for, to go get resources because they were hitting bottom in their life right? from addiction, from burnout, from alcoholism, from affairs, from porn. So at that point you were in a 12 step program yourself. Yep. Yep. Dealing with, um, you know, men who use sex, lust, you know, adrenaline, you know, as a form of, not living in reality, mm. the magic, the chemistry, the, right. Right, the fantasy. Right. And I wanted to live in reality. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. Right. That's the sentence. I right. feel like that's, that sort of encompasses this whole conversation that we're having. It really does. That was the start of, I just want to live in reality. Like this is real. And I didn't need the, the pizzazz. And to go back in that, I felt like I would lose the reality. Like it would suck me back into this mythical world where they're full of blinders of the reality of just hu- being human. Oh, interesting. And that it's okay. We're just yeah. human. At the end yeah. Of the day. Yeah. So that started me on this journey. And the, the dance, though, was I was raising my girls and I was trying to figure out how to you know, make a living. And I had income from my ex, well, my wife still at the time and her family, and they have a trust. And, anyways, so I was able to do some nonprofit and do some really good stuff in the world and 
borrow any anyway. But as my wife and I navigated that world, I was really drawn now to the misfits, the down and outers, the people at rock bottom that needed my help. And she was less. And I understand it was, we're not all cut out to live on in the margins, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? In the back alleys in the, and so we raised our kids for 10 more years, but at the 17 year mark in 2011, we did separate and peacefully divorce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That and, sounds healthy right? enough. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I started a church uh, two months later called reclaimed with the LGBTQ community and two gay, two gay pastors who'd come out and thrown oh, to the cool. wolves. Wow. And start, so I wasn't totally done with like I wanted to give Jesus a chance, but it was Jesus for the misfits, mm. Jesus mm-hmm. for the marginalized. Jesus you mean for, Jesus? Yeah, the Jesus. <laughs> the, the, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, the way he should right. have always been. So yeah. true. And I thought, yeah. well, people, I'm still Keith Page. People still know me. I had the churches who wouldn't want to come to you know, like even Lola wants to come, right? And <laughs> yeah. it, it grew to a whopping size of about forty max over four years. Wow. So I was like, okay, is it because I was the adulterer? Is it because mm. now I love gay, trans, lesbian people? Is it because it's called reclaimed? You know, I didn't. Mm. Is it because I went through a divorce? I was like, I'm sort of the three strike guy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right. like, maybe it's me. <laughs> right, right. Or is God, then it was, I played the head games. Is God still punishing me? Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Am I still paying for my sins? Because the Bible says we'll pay for the sins of our ancestors and our ancestors and their ancestors. So did you have an official moment in your life where you were like, I don't have faith anymore. I just want to like, I want to be able to face my, this life of mine without this idea of like heaven and Yes, but it took about six or seven more years. Mm -hmm. So I had already buried both my parents still, you know, in 09 in 2012, they both died of cancer, and I spoke at their oh. funerals. They wanted; they were very Christian, of course. I was still sort of a pastor, but I, I liked gay, gay and lesbian people at this point. Right? I was, right. No, I was no longer legal. I mean, I wasn't at a church. I was just pastoring people in life, and I'd gone through a divorce. So a lot of grief, but here I am chugging it out, 11, 2012, 13, 14, helping hurting people. But I just felt like I, I can't get a break. Like, God, how much longer – where is there going to be a breakthrough of some sort that shows you're in this with me and this isn't just a Keith attempt at something? Mm-hmm. And I was doing a funeral um, in South Orange County. A, a mortuary hired me because by then I was starting to just realize I would just want to speak human to people. Mm-hmm. And there was a mortuary in South Orange County that was starting to use the term celebrant, which is sort of a secular officiant. And I was doing one. And a guy, I saw a guy in the crowd I recognized and I'm like, wait, I know him from 30 years ago. He used to be, he's a Christian leader. I wonder what he's doing here. And I ended up meeting him. His name's um, Bart. And he said, that was, a, he didn't recognize me. He goes, dude, that was great what you just did. What do you call that? He says, what are you? And I'm like, oh, he's really intrigued because it wasn't a religious service. It was a human celebration of life. And I said, aren't you Bart Campolo? And I said, I'm Keith Page. And I said, what are, he goes, oh, I'm a humanist now. And I said, oh. what's a humanist? <laughs> he said, what you just did is a freaking humanist. We need to talk. He said, I'm the humanist chaplain at USC. I said, dude, we got to talk. So we, so he went back to LA. We talked on the phone that week for about two hours. And he said, dude, he said, you do funerals for people all the time. I've heard your whole story. When are you going to do a funeral for your faith? Mm-hmm. And I remember where I was walking down the back alley of my neighborhood. I started to weep. Oh my gosh. And I said, I've been pulling a dead body yeah. strapped to my life. And I was, I was still jumping, doing all the mechanisms of things called church without any belief that there was a big God 
He said, make up your own definitions and purpose of your life. What do you want? Stop thinking that God has to bless it. God has to ordain it. Right. You are in control of your life. Right. And it clicked. It's mm. like 2017. Finding your own meaning. And I said, you mean I get to pick my own meaning? I get to defy, I get to be the, you know, the originator and the author of meaning in life? He said, absolutely. It sounds so empowering as you're saying it. <laughs> Biggest permission. But, <laughs> but, but I feel like in my life, I'm like, yeah, but I don't fucking know. <laughs> I don't know. Right. No, you, and, yeah. and that's okay. Like, so, but God, there's like, I don't know what this idea of God would actually. Anyway. Because everyone's telling me something oh, completely different well, about what, what he thinks. I said all these years, it was all this fog anyways. Everybody made up their own thing to still, they were using religion as their big hammer to justify their life, but nobody had a changed life or the authority to really prove because everyone had their own view anyway. Right. Everyone is claiming that they're the ones with the true faith and they have the, the real answers. Yeah, they, they've interpreted it correctly. They're mm -hmm. handling God's word faithfully mm -hmm. and everyone else isn't. What so. a breakthrough. To <laughs> it was an amazing breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. Amazing breakthrough. I'm sure, I'm sure it was really hard too, though. It was hard because then it was, how do I authentically have conversations with everyone in my life who... Is going. I'm going to want to share about. I, I've, I I do how to share vulnerably about my life and what I'm learning and doing. How could I leave that part out? That would be the biggest <laughs> right. edit of my right. life. Right, right, right. So I didn't know how to talk about it first. At first, I said, "Oh, I'm struggling in my faith, or I'm being challenged in my faith." And and those all went wrong because if you tell people you're struggling in your faith, they think it's their job to help you to not convince struggle, you, right. right, or to pray for you, mm. or to have a conversation with you. So Bart actually, I realized he has a business now. He has since moved to Cincinnati, and he's now a chaplain at University of Cincinnati, but he has an online coaching business helping coach clergy and pastors and Christians who are leaving their faith. Wow. Oh, that's that's, part that's of his, amazing. Part of his aside. Cool. So he gave me, he basically donated to me some of his time to coach me mm. through that journey. Wow. And, um, and one key tool he gave me, he said, look back over your life. I want you to identify the key values of your life back in the heyday of even your Christian faith. I said, okay, that's easy. Belonging, growing, serving, and a sense of awe and mystery. Mm. He said, I bet you still live by those same values. You just define them a little differently. Yeah. Cause I used to think, Oh, to belong. Well, you've got to be part of a Christian faith. Oh, you can belong in the human race. Mm -hmm. Oh, you got to have to, to grow. You got to have be like Christ like character. No, you just pick people that you identify with and learn from and grow, right? Serve. You got to ask, what would Jesus do? No, I just have to say, what's the next best thing for humans mm -hmm. on mystery. Oh, you got to ask Jesus, you know, to show you the on mystery. no, Watch someone die. Mm -hmm. Watch a baby be born. Mm. Watch a sunset. I was like, oh my God, I'm living the same core values of my life. Right. I've not changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The story, maybe. Some of the meaning yeah. of those things, but I'm still me. Very helpful. I love that. Super anchoring. Yeah. Otherwise, it could be super, you know, disorienting. Be like, what do I do now? I feel like we get DMs about this and people talk about it when they come on, like realizing you don't believe in the thing that you had centered your life around mm -hmm. is just like, you feel like you're floating in space. Like yes. what do you attach to? What right. do you hold on? How do you know what's right? Yeah. Love it. And they're probably universal, meaning they're like a true North, right? They're universal to all of the human condition. Belonging, universal to all of us. We all want to belong. Personal growth. We all want to grow. Mm -hmm. Serving. We all want to serve, make the right. Make, Not everyone wants to serve. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, but our needs. Yeah. 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 And then redefining and, them. And, and how did we yeah. get here even as a human race? I bet we served. I bet those that cooperated best, you mm. know, yeah. and served each other in, in cooperation, probably right. they're 
gene pool, I bet, survived better. Yep. For serving some in some way or another, right? It, uh, having a community to rely on, right. and yeah. yeah, totally. And then on mystery, right? There's just something beautiful about an awe-inspiring. Yeah. It doesn't for me doesn't require a belief in God anymore, which is still <laughs> so weird to say after. I bet. All these yeah. Years, you know. That's, yeah. That's so I'm still yeah. a newbie, right? I'm like five, six, seven years into this journey, but then adding the death element has just added so much value, and I realize. Death has become the great awe for me. Awe-inspiring. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, how did how did you discover that? Well, I think as I started to do the funeral stuff, right, as a funeral celebrant, I get a call from the mortuary saying, "Hey, the Johnson family's you know patriarch just died, and they need a celebrant, and we want you to do it. Are you available in two weeks from now?" And if I say yes, they give me the Johnsons' phone number, and they say next of kin is his wife, you know, Sally Johnson. So I have to call Sally. And say, hi, Sally, it's, it's Keith, you know, and my condolences, and I know your family wants to celebrate, and can I meet with you and your family next week to get all together so I can learn about your amazing husband and the dad and grandpa? So then I would go show up at the family home, and I always say, I knock on the door, a total stranger. They don't know me. Yeah. And I spend 90 minutes to two hours just saying, I want to learn about Mr. Johnson. You know, if we're going to celebrate his life, please begin. I just want to, and I just sit and listen. Listen, right? And as I do... It's like I'm it's like they're channeling him to me and I'm receiving him here and I'm taking a ton of notes. And then afterwards I say, okay, I've heard a bunch and I can tell a bunch of his story. Do some of you want to help? Tell, no, we don't want to speak. We want you to speak. Or, or Grandkey goes, I think I want to try a little bit, but Keith, you do the bulk of it, right? So by the, so then I, I get up you know, two weeks later and do this funeral and it's I'm having this awe, amazing experience because I see the family so grateful that Mr. Johnson's being so honored, mm-hmm. right? And I'm seeing them need that. We as humans need anchor points for goodbyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And that launches us into more of our, our grief journey. Um, and then his story is being told. And then at the end, I often say, let's never forget to say his name and tell his story and remember how he lived. Yeah. And then he lives on in us. Mm-hmm. Right? So as I did that, I thought, this is powerful. What if I could get a running start and work with people before they die? Like, you know, I'm, I'm getting to know Mr. Johnson when he's dead. What if I could get to know Mr. Jo- Mr. Johnson when he's dying with cancer? Right. I was like, oh, that's kind of what chaplains do. So I started exploring the chaplain model. And then somebody at the, at, uh, the mortuary said, you should be a death doula. I said, what's that? <laughs> I said, well, look it up. And then I found this woman in L.A., um, Sacred Crossings, Reverend Olivia. And I went and got trained for six months with her. And I was like, oh, chaplain is one element of walking with people. Being a death midwife is more kind of a little more of the woo-woo side. You know, mm-hmm. like you say death midwife in Orange County for sure. And people are like, what? <laughs> you say chaplain, they, they sort of get it. And I'm just sort of weaving my way into um, learning just to be with people who are either getting a diagnosis mm-hmm. or the family who's the loved ones getting the diagnosis. And I started reading books and finding podcasts and or um, documentaries around people who do this work and it would quicken my spirit. Do you identify with the death positive movement? Yeah. What would you say that is? What is the death positive movement? Is that just that we are not in fear of death? Yeah. I I think it's an attempt to not avoid and to face and to see it as like just a natural part of life instead of this like scary thing. Yeah. I feel like I wanted to be a voice to help normalize it's funny you have to normalize death. Yeah, the uh, most normal thing that could possibly <laughs> it's the most be. universal thing yeah. you can bet bet on for our yeah. lives. But how do we normalize it? Um, much like we would a birth, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And take some of the stigma out. It's interesting because uh, – so I grew up around a lot of death. So in the religion that I was in, we were always going to funerals, always open casket funerals, also had a lot of medical professionals. So people would always come to our house to die. I saw a few people Whoa. die in the hospital, just a lot yeah. of death. And it's always interesting to me because I think when I was a little bit more little, I would have preferred – less but now <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know but i do think that there's an age and i, and I don't think it's a, a very old age where it should start to become a part of the conversation a lot more because even now in my life i'm talking to friends who are like my my grandma's gonna die and i'm like yeah <laughs> right uh, yeah do you not did you not know that and right. they're like no like so fucking baffled yes, by right. by it so right. yeah there's this like interesting line where i'm glad that i'm so familiar with it and sometimes <laughs> wish it would have been a little bit <laughs> right. i mean it doesn't sound fun as it's a little fun. kid right. Right. not fun but yeah it's interesting right. yeah. yeah especially at least maybe for some of the you know it sounds like even strangers were coming into your house to die or people you didn't know very well maybe your family did mm-hmm. but i think for grand you know if our grandparents die it'd be beautiful to have the grandchildren be able to like if I could have d- do it over again, I would have uh, had my mom, you know, normally when a, in California, at least maybe in the U.S., when a body dies, we quickly call the mortuary mm-hmm. and the men in the suits in the van come. And if they die at home on hospice, they come and within a half hour, hour, they take it away, get it out of sight. We got to get it out. Yeah. Right? An hour ago, we were all around her, you know, her, her bedside, you know, mm-hmm. kissing her and telling her right. we love her. And as soon as her spirit's gone, we think, oh, dirty, unclean, not sure what to do with it. And what I teach people now and invite people to do is just to slow down. We don't have to do anything right now. Right? Like, let's just breathe. Let's just be with this moment. Yeah. And what, right. and what do you say to people like, <laughs> so you know, let's say you're you're doing the dry ice thing and you have, you know, you're kind of letting the body be there so that the family can be with it. And one of the kids is like, ew. Right. <laughs> like, what do you say when people have that reaction to that? Yeah. Um, I wish I have had more experience doing the dry ice. It's only been once or twice so far for me okay. because it's newer to or- in Orange County. Okay. I've, I'm hearing enough stories. Usually yeah. there's like one sibling or one family member that wants it. That's why it's happening, right? Mm. And so sometimes they go, I don't want to be a part of it. Make sure we keep her in the bedroom. Mm. We don't want her in the living room, right? And so we say, great. So we create almost like a little um, place of honor in the bedroom. We close the blinds, light some candles shroud her we've already maybe bathed her just as a ceremonial bathing and she's ready right and then we just say to that family member you don't have to go in there you know you could just be out here with the family and visit there's we're not forcing anyone to go back and hang out with mom in in the bedroom but you know what and i hear stories from olivia who often go in first the the grandkids are out playing in the yard then they run in and they grab a cookie then they go let's go check on grandma and they run down the (laughs) hall and they look at grandma and right like you know and it's like then they run back out and they play some more. We're like, maybe we should learn from yeah. the, the children. Mm. Right? Let's just go in and just check on her for a minute. You know, just. Yeah. Um, and often they say over 12 hours or 24 hours, those who are less comfortable might slowly make their way in. And then they have the biggest profound moment. Mm. And often tears. And often I'm so glad somebody uh, sort of invited me into this moment of discomfort. And then I pushed through. Right. Interesting. Even where then like uh, the son-in-laws who didn't want to be involved then end up going to Home Depot and buying the wood and making a homemade casket. Wow. And bringing it. 
Wow. Right? And so it gives opportunity for everyone to begin to participate mm. somehow. Yeah, there's something just so beautiful and I think important about making more of a ritual out of death. Like, oh. you know, it's like they take the body away and then you have a funeral for a couple hours and that's it. That's all we're going to do to address this loss. Right. Yeah, I want a puppet show. I want you guys to do a puppet show. <laughs> with you? With you? Like, you guys are too young to see what... what you die what, first, I yeah. will do this. We- weekend at Bernie's. It's a movie from the 80s you got to see. We take you out. Oh, it's classic. Okay, classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Come on, that's Keith. What, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, right. like, do, do some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. I want... I know well, options are endless. What, have you done anything <laughs> odd? Um, I did hear about um, a family where uh, was it a woman or a man? They had this old classic car, and they they wanted to be like like they, they wanted to look as if they were um, driving her, letting her ride in the car. Really? So they put her body in the in one door, but then out the other door and into another vehicle. But then the car drove away, and it looked like she was in it with them. This woman is awesome. Wow. Yeah. And then the people that were most moved by it was the entire neighborhood because the neighbors start to hear like, oh, mm. Betty died. And they didn't – she's – Betty's in Betty's in the bedroom. Yeah, the, the Smiths have Betty in the bedroom. Should we go over? Well, let's take a casserole. And then, you know, a few people move in. And then, I see. And it's often in the midwife movement especially, they have what's called home funerals. So the body never leaves the home mm-hmm. until you're finally done. So it's like the body's on dry ice for a few days. While that's happening, you're letting the family know they're in the living room or in the backyard. We're having her in the front yard. We're going to have her celebration of life. We're going to have her funeral. And the neighbors start to come out, and they're captivated and curious. And ultimately, very moved. Mm. And by the end, they're saying, "Do you have a card?" Or right, right. we've been radically impacted and changed by this. Right. That's so cool. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. So, yeah. So it's little by little, <laughs> right? It's, it's little by little. Yeah. Yeah, you can't just run up and go, dying. Ah, right? yeah. ah, yeah, we are all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Let's celebrate it. Yeah, it has to casserole. Like, uh-huh. we got to start small. Yeah. It has, to ca- it has to casserole? It has to casserole. casserole. We start with that. the casseroles. Yeah, yeah, you can use that. Right, absolutely. I'm, I'm Mrs. May. <laughs> death, death over casserole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, why casserole? Why is that the thing? Right? It always feels like something that people throw I guess because you can just put it in, you can easily. Yeah, heat it. Yeah, but it's good leftovers. Right, right. Yeah. I do love casserole. I yeah. love a casserole. Please right. bring me a casserole. Maybe that's too. Maybe we all love a casserole. <laughs> I was honestly disappointed that when my dog died, no one brought me a casserole. See? Oh my God, that's so sad. <laughs> oh, I'm going to do it now. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. You made an AI art of him. That was enough. I did. I made him as that a king. That was very sweet. Really? Yeah, because he was a king. I love him. So let's talk about how was that for you to have the passing of a dog Ugh, you love Rambo. So much? I mean, I just cried about him the other day. Like, it's yeah. obviously very sad, but he was 16, and I had thought he was dying as re- like four years before. <laughs> and I thought, you were ready to. And then I thought he was dying again, and then I thought he was dying again, and it just kept turning out. Oh no, he just has this like illness that he needs a medication for, and that's right. an LA fucking sucks. So no one knew it. Yeah. But so I think I just like had thought he was dying so many times that m- by that point I was like, well, I'm on borrowed time. Like this right. is just like I'm grateful that I even get this time with him, and yeah. I like knew it was going to come eventually so it didn't it didn't hurt as much as in my head it would i was yeah. like is this going to be this like i'm not going to be able to survive right when he dies right. and mm-hmm. then he did and my friends were there and my boyfriend was there who you met yes um 
and comforted me and were with me and let me take as long as I needed with him. And, um, and it was okay, you know, like it was sad and awful, but, and I still miss him and I still think he's, I still think I hear his little Mm -hmm. click clack feet on the floor sometimes, but like, I'm okay, you know? And that was really eye opening because I haven't. You know, for people who aren't dog owners, it might sound ridiculous, but like for, you know, someone who with a pet, like your pet's your fucking life, you know, and I, there was a period like I had a breakup a few years ago and then there was the pandemic and I was like, oh my God, if I lose him, I won't, (laughs) like I won't be okay. Um, And then I was, and that was just helpful to know Mm. that like, okay, when I have to deal with this on a much greater scale with an actual human that I love, like. It's going to be horrible, but like if I survive this one, I could probably survive those mm-hmm. ones, even though they'll, be, they'll obviously be a lot harder. Right. Um, so that, that yeah, it, it yeah. was interesting to observe myself. Right. In that did process. you do a memorial type or remembrance at all for Rambo? I did, did with yeah. Jack, okay. um, just with Jack. Yeah, he got me this um, this book of dog poems by this poet I love, nice. um, and we when we got his ashes we yeah. like you know read yeah. through read Pretty some dog poems together and yeah. did a little service and now i have a little shrine to rambo in my apartment so yeah. it was helpful it was right. helpful to have a ritual and not just like you know yeah. try to avoid it i guess right yep mm. yeah yeah we need that we i, I really believe we as humans need rites of passage and markers Absolutely. to help us navigate these things Megan, for you, as growing, having grown up around so much death, I didn't realize it was quite that much death. I didn't realize people were coming to your house to die. Oh, yeah. How many? I think three people have died at our house. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, see, my, I mean, my grandparents died, but I was so young, and, you know, I just, like, didn't spend that much time with their bodies or anything, so it right. all felt very foreign to me. Like, right. do you feel a terror of loved ones dying or oh yeah of course i mean i think that definitely it's just so surreal i think that's the the biggest thing um but but when you like fully understand that it's really happening i think is when it becomes more surreal for some reason Mm. but also at the same time it it does feel like a process that's normalized and that i can like have some knowledge around which is helpful i guess yeah yeah who's the closest person who's the closest i mean i've had like i'm interviewing you now yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) i mean i I just went home like two months ago maybe four my grandpa died so i I was there for it like we were all in the Mm -hmm. room with him and um but like my parents are both still alive and no like cousins or super close friends but friends you know um a roommate in college but yeah nobody my parents would be the real yeah i mean yeah kicker (laughs) yeah i yeah i do like I know I'll be able to handle anything, but like the idea of my mom dying makes me want to die. I yes. can't. I yes. Can't. No. That's um, not okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend. I had a friend die, but it wasn't someone super close. But you know, that was the first time someone like around my age died, which mm-hmm. was very weird. Yeah. Um, I still want to text him sometimes. People really, really lose it over celebrities dying. It's shocking yeah. sometimes, right. but like I think that's sometimes people's first experience with death. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. yeah. Have you ever had that experience? No. 
<laughs> I was around too much real death. No, I, I, I haven't had like a favorite celebrity die or been so invested in a television show that when one of the people dies, it's like, whoa. But I have read a lot of Same. people really, really like have their first existential experience through mm-hmm. celebrities or TV characters, which is interesting. I mean, Jack kind of had that. Sorry to blow up your spot, Jack. Um, <laughs> but my boyfriend had that when this um, this man, Michael Brooks, died. Do you know who he was? Brooks, yeah. He um, he was a host of a like podcast and show called Majority Report, I believe. And he had this extremely humanistic perspective on politics, mm. um, just like really championed caring for others and critiquing systems and not individual people. Oh. Um, and was just like, this was kind of brilliant, like incredibly wise and empathetic mind and he died at like 41 and um jack was really impacted by that just because it was like there's so much he could so much impact he could have had on people there was so much more he had to Mm -hmm. do and say and we just like don't get that we never get that um so that makes i mean it makes sense totally i saw that in my own life and in my community around kobe oh my god oh my god especially being in costa mesa newport and people involved in his basketball league yes knowing his you know my friends of my daughters went to school with his girls wow. and, and again young age accident you know massive right mover mm, shaker and, yeah and yeah being very kind of destabilizing we were downtown just asking random people questions and we asked all these men when's the last time you cried and they all said kobe wow it was so heartbreaking i was like uh, oh yeah. my god yeah yeah that really yeah. that really blew some right. guys brains out of yeah. the water yeah is there anything about death that surprised you that um, yes, I used to th- show up thinking, especially when I was still a, a pastor and mm. the family asked me to show up and feel like I had to say either some magic words or have to do a, some sort of prayer. And this idea of like, what am I doing and saying? Can, can they hear me? You know, they haven't died yet, but they're, you know, at home on hospice and they're maybe already no longer coherent. Mm-hmm. But the hope that maybe they can still hear and sort of praying for them. Anyways, this idea of having to... Uh, back in the day, show up and kind of be the guru. And now very much I see the one dying as my teacher. Um, and right. they're the ones that, um, and I am a student and just a witness to their their living and how they leave, right? Yeah. how they die. So that's been a big shift. And then each person I'm with, especially as a hospice chaplain, um, I don't have to go and fix. I don't have to go and make better. I don't have to go and give the magic words. I get to go and show up and be with and in some ways lear- learn from them. Yeah, yeah, right? learn, exactly. Learned learn from their own death and dying. Oh, wow. So that's Oof. a biggie. Have you worked with younger people's deaths? Uh, yeah, mostly those have been mostly in the way of funerals. Less, um, right, we have a young person in his 30s that's on hospice from oh. liver oh. cancer, liver failure, you know, drinking himself to death. Oh. Um, but now he's come off of hospice because now he's trying to get a liver transplant and he can't get a liver transplant on in line there if you're oh, on hospice geez. so now he's but then he you know then he he has a bout where he is a setback and he ends up back in the er right and they say we don't think you're a candidate for transplant so he's like do i come back on hospice oh my gosh so oh. fighting fighting to live right but he's also already written out his whole death plan who he wants as pallbearers where he wants to be buried he's paid for a plot Wow. So I, I, it's really this juxtaposed between him being ready in some ways, at least the legal financial element ready. Uh-huh. But do I still have a chance to maybe get a liver transplant if possible? Like I don't want to go out at least without trying. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, so that's 
What a yeah. What a difficult yes dilemma. And then I've done many suicides and overdoses, oh. accidental and or purposeful, you know, overdoses and those. Mm. The, the the wreckage uh, so sad the wreckage of the fam you know the fam showing up in the family's home um, and they're just they, they look like the, you know just there's no life in their own eyes when I look at Aww. a mom or a dad whose loved one has just mm. you know a young twenty something has just died That's awful. yeah how does that not wear you down emotionally I feel like I find friendship in their grief like Mike somehow super well, I almost said supernaturally. Uh, it wouldn't be supernaturally. It would be energetically or emotionally. My grief that I, I'm a griever now. Like I know grief. I'm a com- Grief is my own companion and witness to my life, having been through losses and experienced deaths and losses. So as I join them in their grief, my grief finds a companion in their grief. Mm. And so their grief doesn't overwhelm me, and I don't feel like I have to fix it. Again, right. I, I, know, right. I know I can't fix it. I know there's no right. magic words. I know their grief is going to be their journey. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, their grief, fingers crossed, can also be some somewhere in there a gift. Even in their grief, there can be some gift that awaits them. Mm. Well, it's certainly a teacher. And grief is going to be the great teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And so that helps me not fall apart during. And then afterwards, I just have to always practice self-care. I've given myself more permission than ever to sleep more than ever, live in my pajamas on off days. <laughs> yeah. You know. I have a question. Has it taught you anything more about how you want to live life? Oh, yeah. Each day being such um, such a gift, it causes me to uh, focus every day on just the people I want to spend time with. Ah. You mm. know, and less worried about spending time with those that, you know, in some ways I, I don't want to spend time with. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And then also being open, though, to the, the surprise moments of life that happen just along the way. I, I got here early and I was at a Starbucks and I was crossing a crosswalk and an older lady was crossing. And I just smiled and she smiled. And I just thought, I love life right now. Yeah. I just love that human encounter of one human and another human. There's nothing supernatural about it. But I just mm. had that, that moment that that was a gift. Right. Yeah. And because I know that I'm going to die, that my life is terminal and I am finite, it helps each each moment gets can get a spotlight very, very quickly. Mm, right? Yeah, I love that. But it also doesn't make me want to go do more. It hasn't increased my bucket list. Right. right because right. those things I don't find as much meaning around. For me, it's the sweetness of what I'm doing with my life right now. The thing that I just keep coming back to as I'm reading my existential books or whatever, <laughs> and having my own existential crisis is just that like. There's no, there's no real way to make it. I mean, for me, there's no real way to like make it better or make it feel better. And the only thing that I can really do and that it does help me is just connection around it. Like, which is exactly what you do hosting death cafe, which we Mm -hmm. can talk about, but like being able to share this, these feelings of like. Uh, pointlessness or fear or you know um or grief or loss whatever it is like just to not be alone in those feelings i think is so incredibly important and healing and is is really the only thing we can do for those of us who aren't believers and don't have something to attach our (laughs) right after you know you're right And and i think back to your question too megan that's where i find my grief has companions i feel most alive and most connected with other people that are grieving because we're stripped away of all the other stuff Mm. that we think matters right and i'm like wow these people get what really matters right now 
right. what they would do for, I was with a widow yesterday preparing her husband's service and she said, Oh my God, he was such a chatterbox. And he told the same stories over and over again. <laughs> and she stopped. She said, but what I would do to hear one more story. Mm. Right. I was like, Oh, I just feel, I feel connected to her. Yeah. Right? yeah, And it's because I'm with those people one, two, three times a week in these appointments, either as a hospice chaplain or preparing for a funeral, that I'm finding so much uh, companionship around keeping the main thing the main thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So for someone who had faith and lost it and is now like contending with this idea of death as just the end, possibly, you know, obviously we can never know for sure, mm-hmm. but like... What would you say to someone like that in that position? Um, I, I mean, I would ask a bunch of questions, right? Mm. I, would, I would want to listen to them about what has been meaningful in their life so far. What are, where are they finding meaning now? Um, how do they do with this idea of an ending? How does that sit with them? You know, I would just try to um, learn. I would just hold space for them to be okay or not okay with where they are. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, this is the gift right here. Mm. Us just being together in it. And maybe this is as good as it gets. Right. Ooh, and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Right? This human connection, right? Because if we can sit in the I don't knows and the doubts and the and just be honest about that, I think we're off to a good start. <laughs> yeah. we, we could always build on, right? It's like, well, in light of all of that, then how would you like to live? Right. Right. Like radical acceptance. It totally. Is, right? In light of all this, but we can't answer. You know, it, yeah. it, it just it invites us to dig a little deeper to say, what is a core value? Again, what is your true north? What is that compass that guides you to find meaning? Right. Um, and we don't have to be the judge of anyone else's meaning. And we ought not be the judge of our own way of yeah. meaning. Mm-hmm. Right? We can hold, we can throw against the wall and see if it sticks. And if it doesn't, and we don't like the result, we can always change. Our right. Meaning, right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. God's or. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Or, yeah, or void. Big void. Yeah. Big void. Yeah. <laughs> Thank All you, void. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It seems like it, so much of our culture is about this need for certainty and hunting for clear answers, and that journey away from faith is, you know, kind of about learning to live with uncertainty and accept uncertainty and be uncomfortable and right. that be okay, which right. is really hard. Right. If I gave them an answer, it would be a, it would be again, the illusion of, that they're going to be okay. Totally. And I've, I've given them an answer. Mm-hmm. Right. And the best thing I can do is join them in the mystery of the undoneness, the unfinished, the unanswerable and let them see that we're okay right now. Right. Right. Yeah. But you're a death doula, Keith. You have the answers. <laughs> 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 or a midwife. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and that's it. And the joy really is in showing up for the other person. Aww. Yeah. That's of course. It. Yeah. It's just showing up for them. And then I just become the permission giver. I don't even tell them what they should do. I make suggestions and I ask them what, what they feel like the next right step is. You know? Yeah. And that way I'm not giving I'm not giving a prescription for here's what you must do. Here's some things you could do. What right. what feels right to you. Right. Yeah. It's very much a, um, a responsible approach to yeah, being in yeah, that position. Yeah. With and just kind of that you're just kind of guarding some guard, you know, some guardrails, right? Kind of get our mm-hmm. hands around the guardrails of, you know, when a body dies, we do want to put it on dry ice because if not, in 24 hours, there will start to be just some odor and some some decay, and the dry ice helps freeze the insides, 
Right. And that's mm-hmm. okay. So there's some things like that. But if they want to put on his favorite Kobe jersey, or you want, they want to put him in a suit, or they want to shroud him, or they, you know. Again, my puppet show. Or they want to do the puppet <laughs> show. What do we, you know? <laughs> I love that you want a puppet show because I am an actual ventriloquist. I know. So. Oh, gosh, You're gonna have to, that? You can do the podcast <laughs> with me. <laughs> and I'm Megan Elizabeth. <laughs> Oh my god! I want to be here for that. I want to be here. If I'm still alive. <laughs> oh my god! But please don't die anytime soon, so no, we don't have to I do won't. that. Yeah, I right. won't. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> I think it just gives you a whole new appreciation of life when you know that it's going to end, and uh, you yeah. can stop taking yourself so seriously and start taking yourself seriously in some beautiful paradox. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm someone who definitely struggles with. Like I vacillate between um, life is short, every moment is precious, and a life is short, so nothing means anything, and this is all going to end. So what is the point of yeah, anything? That beautiful <laughs> tightrope, tight you know? Yeah, it is. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I don't know if it feels so beautiful, but like, yeah, it can. And in moments, yes. And the more that I like take the time to, you know, expose myself to that idea and talk about it and be present with it, the easier. It feels, mm-hmm. I guess, not easier, but just like a little easier. Yeah. Do you still set goals? Do you guys set goals for your life? Is that a thing for? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Goals and dreams, and yeah. of course. So, yeah. yeah. So sometimes I'm like, regardless of how I feel, whether it matters or doesn't matter, I still got my list that it, in a moment of clarity where I set my 30 day goals, and, and right. so I'm going to go through them. I'm going to still do go after those, regardless of whether or not I think it's going to be meaningful or not. Right, meaningful. right. That's I still really got some. I still got some shit to do. Uh huh. So I might as well just get after this, you know. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I don't don't know. The death doula lady, uh, Reverend Olivia, she taught us the words, I don't mind. Not I don't care, but Mm. I don't mind. Mm. She was helping us work on our health directive and our death directive. Like at the end of the days, we don't want to be on a breathing tube. We don't want to be – or a feeding Mm. tube. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be on a breathing machine, right? All these things, right? If if, um, we'd rather not have – what yes. do you call it? Intervention that way. But what if we were in an accident? All of a sudden, we woke up and the breathing tube down and you're being fed. And you're, the plan that you had all prepared for with your death doula partner and how you want to die, it's like not going according to plan. Mm. And yet you planned. And, and she said, it's not that I don't care, but can we learn to live with an I don't mind mm-hmm. mindset? Mm-hmm. Right, like a kind of radical acceptance again. Yeah, it's like, oh my god! Like even all this planning of I'm going to die well, I'm going to have this very conscious death, and and then you know you're super sick, and you go, I don't want to do meds because I want to be conscious. You're like, give me the fucking morphine. I do want the morphine. You know, yeah, it's, like, it's the epidural of death. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. how do we live? And uh, I don't mind if even if things change or things don't go as planned. Yeah, I mean, you're dying. It's fine. Yeah, right. That's yeah, that's my favorite part of the power yeah. of now. She was like, somebody was dying. <laughs> And she was like upset that somebody stole her ring, and he was like, "Do you? You're dying. <laughs> Rings don't exist anymore. It's so cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I and I love that too, and I think that's an important point too because I think culturally we should get to a place where we're planning more and preparing more and and like Absolutely. accepting it, but also we can't. We're not going to be able to control right. how it happens. There's still, uh, right. Like knowledge, we, yeah, we have yeah, to like give up never, some of that. It'll never let us get a yeah, get it all right. to plan. Yeah. No. So, two final questions for you. So, one, if you could be the king of the culture in America, let's just yeah. say, um, and you were like, okay, I would like to make this change and this change around death. 
Yeah. What would what would those changes be? Yep. Um, every school in America, r- rather than just have health ed and sex ed, has death ed. Mm-hmm. Why cool. not in our school system begin to create a curriculum around death and dying, like we do birth, birth control, health, wellness. Yeah. Living, yeah. Living living with this idea of death in view. Yeah. Mm. Love that. that yeah. yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> I want it. Right? Yeah. I bet, also I more actual sex cricket. ed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally right. <laughs> Intimacy ed, that'd be nice. Yeah, right? um. so, yeah, so that would be one. And then I think some sort of, um, I don't know, almost like national attention to death options because so many people don't know either when they're dying or when a loved one has died. They just feel the mercy of they feel so ignorant that all of a sudden, oh, my God, I just know I've got to go to the mortuary and my loved one's in the back room. And, you know, we're distraught. And you feel like, oh, my God, now am I going to be sold a bag of goods about the expensive mm-hmm. you know, casket and all the bells and whistles and, and almost tricked into or guilt into giving your loved one a celebrate a very expensive celebration to right. show them how much right. they, oh God. They, they cared. Ugh. And there's often people feel like that that whole culture of the cemetery the i guess funeral world it's become so professional oh no um there's only like two there's two or three i think two organizations that are buying up all of the cemeteries oh, no. oh my god oh, yeah they're they're monsters uh, no so um so what about the the green burials is that where the, you become a tree no the green burial is just that you go into the ground with no casket oh um not you can't be embalmed i see and you're either like a burial cloth that's biodegradable i think there's only one in california it's out in joshua tree oh wow. and instead of putting a marker they give you a gps of where the body was buried and it's just in that the soil. i love right. that right? i think that's awesome and have so, you guys seen the ones that you're buried in and then you're like a little thing underground and i think so yeah it's like this cocoon yeah, looking i want to be a tree uh, i do too there's yeah. so many options yeah it's not in california yet but i think it is coming there's cool. um, in mush in mu- this oh, this whole bed of mushrooms also wow fungus kind of absorb your body and eat That's you all up nice. do you know like is the is the <laughs> reason for all the stuff we do around bodies is that does that come from some kind of like christian idea that we'll be resurrected someday or something Which, i know in, around the embalming yeah um apparently started in civ- during the civil war when men's were dying out at, at war and they had to get them home and still in one piece in their bodies without decaying because it was mm. going to take a train ride. Right. So they started to embalm them for that reason, just for travel, for buy some oh, time interesting. so they could get the, the loved one home for burial and still be recognizable. Uh-huh. I guess they, that was better, probably easier than a frozen frozen cars, you know, with mm. putting the bodies on ice. Right. And so, but then somewhere in the formation of the professional funeral home, they said, we can make your loved one preserved. Uh-huh. Uh, and it just became a marketing. Right. I will say in my well, in my religion growing up, people didn't get... Um, embalmed. Well, no, um, they cremated. didn't get cremated Same. because for the second coming. That. Same. Yes. They, they wanted yes. to... The Catholics know, just... still are some of the last to fight that. They've been trying to not let you be buried and have a mass if it's cremation. But now they've changed their mind. Yeah, because I feel like more as, and more people are being created. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. because it's so expensive now right. too. Like, yeah. I feel like they're like, just kidding. Jesus no, can you can totally be resur- resurrected <laughs> from ash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they don't want to scatter yeah. their ashes in separate places because how could God pull them? Right, the right. It's, it's God. He yeah. can do it. God can, it's um, okay. Can, yeah, can I definitely grew up thinking you weren't supposed to 
be cremated because Jesus, like God, would but then re- I'd resurrect like, what you. If you ha- what if you died in a plane crash and then I'd get stuck? <laughs> yeah, you're a more analytical child than me. See all the uh, loopholes. Gotta right? love just the thinking that you did as a kid when you're told these stories. It's really beautiful. <laughs> right. Anyway, yeah. But yeah. it is a lot more expensive uh, for the funeral with the body and the casket and the mortuaries like that because, it, you know, they up, can upsell so many of those different things. Of course. Like- um, but more and more, 60% now, I think, or, or the numbers, I think it's 40, but it's going up that are um, cremating. Oh. Um, and I didn't know this, and I'm going to do this now, full body burial at sea, where they shroud your body and they take you out two miles out at Long Beach mm. and then drop uh, you. I don't know. That seems a little white lotus. You, you, You're going to you, pop up as somebody swimming. No, you, no they, they anchor. I mean, they put sand oh, in the bottom okay. and you sink to the bottom. <laughs> All right. And then the salt water dissolves you. But Some I did see child the stumbles on your body. Oh, yeah. uh, there's, there's Pastor Keith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a hard decision. Yeah, but I... I I guess thinking about it, like there were throughout history, there have been different ways of preserving bodies for all kinds of religious beliefs or maybe even non-religious beliefs. So it's not necessarily like a bad thing, but I do love the idea of like being, you know, being reunited with nature or going back to where I came from. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's a really nice idea. And I'm fully in for the ventriloquist stuffed life. But what do we do with the body once we're done using you as Never stop trying to resuscitate me. Okay. Just keep you around when you sit up in a corner. Always. Put you in the booth. Yeah. Have fun with it. There was a period of my life where I thought, oh, maybe I would want to be like um, taxidermied. Oh, yeah. yeah. Stuffed. Yeah, maybe I want to be in a museum somewhere. The creepy Lola who once I, ex- who once I lived. I did wonder if they do. Steve's eyes are so human, wide. Human in there. taxidermy. I did wonder if that was. Yeah, happens. They do. How they often. do. I mean, I mean, they have like the bodies exhibit, but they don't look like they looked. Obviously, right. it's they're like. I mean, I'm muscles. Yeah, I'm fully planning to get a few people stuffed. So I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> Good, please yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see them afterwards. Um, yeah. And then, I'll, so can you just tell us? quickly what death cafe is also and then some of the other work that you do if you want to talk about it yeah death cafes um started in i guess the uk 10 12 years ago maybe and it was a movement sociologists wanted to study uh, thoughts around death and the culture so they brought some people together to talk about death i don't know if once a week or once a month and they met they drank coffee or tea they had cake and they could talk about death no agenda uh-huh. no 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 teaching no lecture just a free flow and when the study was done, the people wanted to still meet. They said it was really life-giving for them to have Aww. a place where they could do it. Out of that was birthed the death cafe movement. There's like 6,000 death cafes that happen around the world. Cool. They're free. And they still always serve cake and <laughs> coffee. Great. And no agenda, no facilitator. So me and this other late gal I met through, death cafe, through the death doula training, she lives in Costa Mesa. We started one before COVID and did it for a year. And we had sometimes, and we just promoted it online and through Facebook and social media and deathcafe.com is a website and people that look for it can look Ah, at their zip code and go, oh, there's one in Costa Mesa right? and get information and come. It's just once a month. Ours was, I think, one first Wednesday of the month or something. We had as few as four people and as many as 20 and people as young as uh, 18, 19 years old, as old as 86. Wow. And most came out of curiosity because they have these thoughts, but they don't know who else to have them with because if they try to bring it up with their family, they often get shut down. And they just wanted a safe place to do it. So we did that for about a year. COVID came. It went online. We started back up. But again, the the turnout's not been really good. 
So I'm debating on switching over to more of a podcast model. Interesting, yeah. Around death, you know, and maybe make it a live interview with me and this other lady, talk about it, and then let people chime in with questions and I really think you should. I yeah, think that's such a good that idea. A death, almost a death and then just record it on Facebook Live or Instagram Live. Or yeah. It was so – that first time that I went, I was having a lot of – told you I have OCD and I was having a lot of just like uh, uh, anxiety-inducing obsessions about death and just hearing everyone talk about it together and have it not be this right. thing that it felt like I needed to avoid was just very healing and yeah. everyone had such a different relationship with it and such different thoughts about it and I just think mm-hmm. it's such a great – format and I, I hope you keep doing it and I hope you do it in LA too because yes. Orange County is far. <laughs> I, I would gladly do it. I also heard somebody I met with another funeral celebrant yesterday and she said there's a friend she thinks in LA called Death Over Drafts and it's like draft beer and oh, death. Fun. I was like, oh, oh interesting. Fun. So I'll gather the what what she's learning and who she knows it and we'll just mm, compile resources. That's awesome. Uh, and then is there uh, do you, anywhere people can find you or your organizations online? If they just go to myname.org, not my name, but Keith Page, <laughs> KeithPage.org, that's the best way to probably find find me. Amazing. What happens uh, when you go to myname.org? Now I'm curious. I know, right? Uh, it's, it's available? No, yeah. They want you to probably pay yeah, them should, a lot of money for it. it. Yeah, yeah let's buy it. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, it's a movement. <laughs> um, yes. And I have thought about even – because I've done so many celebrations of life, it would be cool to go into a studio or just record them myself, each person's story, even after oh, I've yeah. done it, and mm. just post it so that people it just lives on. That's awesome. And it would be great to have so all these stories that people could either watch or at least listen to of their loved ones, right? Like, how do we help keep their life story mm, in front of I us? I love that. Mm-hmm. So, That's great. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, Keith. Hey, you guys are amazing. Thank you. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait to uh, find out what else you're you got cooking up, so I can listen and watch and be <laughs> supportive. So thank you. Same. Thank you. Okay, thank to, you. To be continued. Okay, Megan, have you thought about your funeral and what you want that to look like? You know, I used to say that I definitely didn't want anyone to have a good time. I don't <laughs> want you to celebrate and like go have pizza afterwards and like this isn't a party you should all be very sad for a year (laughs) but the more I grow the more I think why not mm, you know have some really cool video of all the terrible pictures my boyfriend's taken of me and (laughs) uh everybody can just remember the good things and I actually saw this article the other day about a man who just got arrested because he faked his own death in Brazil to see who would come to his funeral. No. (laughs) Genius. Genius. I'm actually trying to buy the rights to it because it's the perfect story. Oh my God. Um, For a movie. What about you? What do you want your funeral to be like? Um, extravagant. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I want to go out in style. My apartment is very, like, maximalist. Like, I want my funeral to be maximalist. And I do want it to be a party. I want there to be fucking delicious food. Okay. And, like, I don't know, like, the most emotional music and then the sickest dance party and, like, lots of amazing colors. hear me out. You're a pop star, right? (laughs) I mean, I guess. (laughs) We swing your body down like Lady Gaga coming into a concert. <laughs> like it's and, descending in the air like yeah, Rihanna at the Super Bowl. The coolest outfit. Yes. And then it just goes into your casket. 
Oh my God. Yes, Megan. I mean, I don't know who's going to pay for it, but let's absolutely do it. We could start a GoFundMe, you know, <laughs> the sooner the better. As long as I, as long as my coffin is beautiful, I don't really care. Like, mm. I don't know, like hot pink. No, not hot pink. I'm past my pink phase, but like really pretty, you know, although do I really want to be buried in a coffin or do I want to be just in the ground? Like what we were talking about earlier. I don't know. And I think I want to be um, cremated. In any case, I wish there was a way to like do it like you do weddings. Like it's in a fucking castle in France. You know what I mean? Mm, like, mm-hmm. yeah, something. I mean, ideally, it would be something so spectacular. But f- for most of us who can't do that, I guess you just bring the the best of them and celebrate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you tell you tell the best stories. Although even that, honestly, like I I'm resistant to the idea that people will like pretend that they that they thought I was perfect when I was alive. Like I really want people to talk about what was fucked up about me when I am dead mm. so that they mm-hmm. so that I know that they loved me for real like despite my flaws instead of pretending I didn't have Okay, any. great. I Is that I will, a weird thing to say. I will take over say that all part. all the things you hate about me. Okay. <laughs> cool Uh, oh my god um anyway hopefully though none of us die for a very long time yeah and have some peace when you do yeah and we can haunt all the immortal uh children of the next generation who never have to die because of technology uh it makes me really sad i'm so jealous actually i'm not i'm good i'm good i'm good i'm good i'm good so i guess we're good and on that note Oh, yeah. My part. Um, You guys, we're so glad that you spent another week of this precious time of life with us. We can't wait to see you again next week. And as always, remember to follow your gut. Watch out for red flags. And never, ever ever trust me. Bye. Bye. Trust Me is produced by Kirsten Woodward, Gabby Rapp, and Steve Delamater. With special thanks to Stacey Para. And our theme song was composed by Holly Amber Church. You can find us on Instagram at Trust Me Podcast, Twitter at Trust Me Cult Pod, or on TikTok at Trust Me Cult Podcast. I'm Ula Lola on Instagram and Ola Lola on Twitter. And I am Megan Elizabeth Eleven on Instagram and Babraham Hicks on Twitter. Remember to rate and review and spread the word. 